I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Edel Blanks, president and CEO of Intralox, a global manufacturer of conveyor belts that is headquartered in Jefferson Parish and has facilities located around the world. The company has grown dramatically in the last several years thanks to the rise of e-commerce and now employs more than 3,000 people worldwide. Today, Blanks, who's also a Tulane grad and a former law partner at Jones Walker, will talk about what Intralox does, how it came to be, why business is booming, and how the company has built and maintained a reputation as a great place to work. Edel Blanks, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks. Thanks a bunch. Well, to start, for those who don't know, what is Intralox and what do you make? Well, we, we really provide solutions for factories and distribution centers around the world. The product is a conveyor belt, a special type of conveyor belt, a modular plastic conveyor belt. It's used in light duty applications. So for example, if you go to the grocery store, most of the products uh, in the grocery store are carried on our conveyor belts at some point in the process. Not in the grocery store, but uh, you know, in the processing centers for and factories for food. And then, you know, light duty applications, the, the wheels on your, your top, on your car have been carried on our belts. Uh, you know, the, the beer you drink is uh, pasteurized and carried on our belts. Uh, and then we have a, a specialized products and we make conveyors, uh, sortation systems uh, and larger systems for uh, e-commerce and other uh, applications that are carrying and manipulating packages. So that, that's what we do, that's the product. But again, a big part of it is bundling a service into it. So if you're a food processor, you are very concerned about food safety and hygiene. So we have to provide products and materials uh, that are fault tolerant, that can carry the product, that are uh, the conveyor design. Everything has to be uh, super, uh, you know, almost perfect for those, for those customers. It's so rare to have a major manufacturing company located in New Orleans and you guys are headquartered right outside the city in Jefferson Parish, and then you have another major facility that's expanding in Hammond. Uh, but then you have facilities all over the world. Can you share some metrics just that help explain the scale of what's going on here? Well, it, you know, we make these, uh, they look like little Lego pieces, and then you combine them into many different configurations of conveyor belts. So we make many, many small orders that go out to our customers because each of our customers wants exactly the right belt in each application. Uh, so, But we do all of our core manufacturing of those parts here in Louisiana. And we have a major facility here in Harahan. And at some point we ran out of space and we also wanted some backup uh, capability in case of hurricanes. And so we began in Hammond. So both of those facilities are very large and some one of the largest uh, injection molding, uh, you know, combined facilities in, in the country. Uh, and it's very, you know, state of the art uh, manufacturing with, uh, you know, uh, all of that. The rest of our operations and including another operation here are assembly centers. So you have to take our belts and imagine 
a $3,000 order and you have to configure it into exactly the right application and ship it out quickly, that, that's what we're very good at. So we have assembly facilities, I'll just name a few examples. So in Australia and in Brazil and, and two in Europe, those are designed to provide the service to the customers. Uh, so that's what uh, we do in those, those facilities. Are you able to describe the, you know, the amount of customers you have or the amount of um, revenue you guys have? What, what's, what's a way you can describe the size of the business that's comfortable? Well, I, I would say we have many, many customers. Many of the major brands in the grocery store are major customers of ours. Uh, the e-commerce, uh, FedEx, uh, UPS, Amazon, U.S. Post Office, all of those are, are customers of ours. All the tire manufacturers are customers of ours. So we have a lot of different uh, uh, customers. And obviously, we organize ourselves by industry and by customers. So we have teams that work uh, specifically for those, for those customers. You know, our, our revenues have grown a lot. You know, we are, you know, it's hundreds of millions. Um, and, you know, it can, <laughs> we'll see what happens. But it's, it's, been, it's been pretty good. Uh, other than some blips over time, you know, there it's it's never easy. So, real quick, I meant to ask this right at the beginning, but can you explain the relationship between Intralox and Latrum? Latrum is the parent company uh, with several divisions. Uh, probably the most famous division is the shrimp peeling uh, division, because uh, the, uh, J. M. Lapere, who founded the company, was the inventor of the shrimp peeler, and he was a brilliant uh, inventor, and so. He began that company, and then at some point he, he just hated the conveyor belt that was being used in the shrimp peeler, and so he uh, developed, uh, he invented the Intralox product. Uh, he's also was the inventor of many other products. So we have a, a division called Latrum Machinery that makes the sh shrimp peelers and many other things now, processing uh, uh, equipment. And then we have Lapair Stair, which is an industrial safety uh, stair, and then there's Intralox. So that that's the relationship. Everything is manufactured in Louisiana, either at Hammond or in Jefferson Parish, and then it, then it gets sent out all over the world, whether it's North America for a client here or to Australia for a client there, uh, and it's assembled and delivered to the to the customer. Is that right? The the assembly locations have have inventory, so we're constantly uh, re you know sending inventory to those locations, and then those locations have to pull from the inventory uh, to to build the belts and. You know, to put it in perspective, there are uh, just uh, thousands of different configurations of our belts. We used to worry that years ago, you know, our customers would try to standardize on one kind of belt and it would become commoditized. And then, you know, I want to mention we have lots of competitors, so we're not alone in the universe here. Uh, so we worried about that, but that's not what happened. Customers want exactly the right belt in each application, so it's become more challenging. And what we do is uh, at the time of the sale, we say, look, if you have an emergency, we guarantee we will ship the belt out uh, same day. We have four-hour service, same day, next day, three day, or the belt is free up to a certain amount. So we have skin in the game. So the, what we're, we're doing is selling a form of insurance because things happen in factories. There are fires, there are forklifts that bump into things, there are problems, and so you have to move very quickly. And so we have we have the ability to do that, and that's a... a something that's uh, critical to us. So the importance of these assembly centers is really to service those markets. So we have a, a facility in, in Amsterdam, and so if a German customer or a Dutch customer or an Italian is down, we have to get the product to them uh, very quickly, and our, our customers are counting on us to do that. They don't want to have to call 
and check, do you have inventory, can you do it or not, and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, we know we're going to do it. That puts huge pressure, by the way, on our whole, our whole system and our operations groups. But in other words, what you build, it's sort of like Amazon. You've built a, a system that gets things done quickly for people that saves them money. Yes, and I think the business model of going directly to the end user and, and organizing ourselves by industry, the idea behind that is we're very close to our customers so we can understand their needs in product development and design, but also um, you know, we can respond quickly. So if you're a customer from uh, a major uh, chicken processor or fruit and veg processor and you have a problem, you can call us and we'll, we still answer the phone within three rings. Of course, you can do a lot of things. You can reach us on the web. You can email us. Uh, but uh, so it's we're trying to provide a high level of service. You mentioned something just now that I wanted to follow up on, and that is I know in the, at some point in the past you made a decision to go direct to customer versus uh, you know, some kind of uh, middle person. Can you explain what happened, when that happened, and how there was risks involved and how it paid off? The, the old types of conveyor belts really uh, were fabric belts originally. And so those belts, almost to fix them, you almost had to go into the plant and sew them. I'm talking decades and decades ago before it became more, you know, different types of materials. So those, those companies grew up have, needing a distribution to service their accounts. So they had to have a, a, a series of distributors who were selling all kinds of things. For us, uh, because of the nature of our product, that it's modular and you can just pull a rod out and replace the module very quickly, we didn't have to do that. So everybody was selling through distribution. I, I wasn't here at the time, but uh, Jay LaPere made the decision, uh, look, we're going to go direct. And it was, you know, at the time, it was like, wow, you guys are really, you know, everybody was going, you guys have really messed up. And, you know, and it was kind of chaotic for, you know, to move from distribution to direct sales. And it was much more expensive because we added uh, direct sales. We had customer service. Um, but that move was, uh, was very strategic. And then later... Uh, around 2000, we moved to an industry structure. So we used to have some a team that would cover California, but now we said, look, we have the scale, we're gonna do something dramatic and we're gonna go by industry. And so, um, you know, somebody who was covering California now is covering, you know, the brewery industry, for example. So, uh, so that was challenging too, but I think really helped us understand those, uh, those markets better. Uh, and also particularly in places like Europe where we had all the countries and regional differences and going to an industry structure allowed us to uh, understand those industries. On, on a culture side, it also was, was uh, energizing because everybody could really become experts in what they were doing. We could apply teams to these industries, marketing, sales, engineering. Uh, so it was, it, it was fun in that way too. I assume uh, food processing and uh, e-commerce moving boxes around, those are probably two of your divisions. Can you explain can you just tell us what, what the major divisions are? Well, we have three business units, and uh, food is a, is a really big one for us. Um, and then we have what we call logistics and material handling. And so that's, that's e-commerce, warehouse and distribution, and, and that has a very specialized product that we had, have, have invented. Uh, and so we're, you know, that, that's a big part of our business. And we have a significant operation up in the Baltimore area. I mean, uh, it, really has grown a lot and that we acquired a business up there that had a corresponding patent to what we invented and the two things you know two plus two was a lot more than four so it was a small smaller company we acquired it back in i think 2007 or 8 and then 
that business became our, uh, you know, a lot of our equipment business into logistics and material handling. The other uh, business unit is industrial, and it covers a number of segments. So, you know, can manufacturing, and with the, you know, the pressure to move to aluminum cans from, uh, you know, throwaway uh, plastic bottles, uh, that business has really uh, was has surprised us with how how fast it's uh, grown and continues to to grow. That's one example. That that business unit also has tire. You know, we're investigating some new industries uh, in that in that world. Can you explain how Interlox and your products work together with equipment manufacturers? Because at first when I, when I thought about what you did, I thought you made the entire machine that moves everyone's stuff where it needs to go. But now, is it, is it a decent metaphor for me to think of as the, like Interlox is making sort of the tires for the car? You guys are the, uh, yeah. an essential component of this overall machine that moves stuff. I think that's a very good uh, good analogy. We're like the tires on, on the car, and we don't make the conveyors except in the logistics and material handling where we have a, a very specialized uh, a product, and we make that in, in Baltimore. But we, the belts are all made here, uh, but they go up there and are, are assembled. Um, this, the, the rest of it is yes, absolutely. And we work very closely with conveyor makers, uh, you know, OEMs. So we're working with both the end user and the OEMs. Uh, That's an original equipment manufacturer? Yes, yes. So we work with both. If I'm, uh, I'm opening up a juice company and I need to move my products, who do I call first? Do I call an, uh, an equipment manufacturer or is there some other third party that, that reaches out to you and to the manufacturer and puts together everything turnkey? It really depends. I mean, we have many long-term relationships with customers you know, that we've built up, built up over the years. And so... Typically, we would know if that customer's, you know, building a new plant or has an expansion. So we would be involved in that. But in that case, you know, if it's a new factory or a, a whole new line, typically there's a pretty significant uh, equipment maker involved in that. So the equipment maker would off, will, will take the lead in, in some ways on those kind of pro, uh, projects. But we certainly want the customer to prefer us, the end customer, and then for us to work with the uh, equipment maker. But we also work with many OEMs. Uh, we've worked with them for years. Do you and these OEMs have the equivalent of an architect or a designer? There's like the, you know, there's the builders and then there's the people that make the components, but is there someone who says, oh, you need to do X, Y, and Z at your, at your facility? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I mean, typically, you know, the, the, for a new plant, there may be architects and industrial designers, and there are companies that do that, and sometimes the equipment makers themselves do that, and integrators. Um, but what we do is help with the belting, right? So we have, for example, we have a specialized product that carries cases, so the back end of plants, whether it's a box or a case of beer, and we can manipulate products in many different directions. It's the same kind of product we use in our logistics business. I mean, if you go to the grocery store and you see all these small package types, you know, that gives companies fits to try to carry those or the new containers with patches. And, and so, you know, we can enable that. And we have uh, software and products where we can do layout consulting. So we like to okay. work with the customer, with the equipment maker, with the integrator to say, well, wait a second. If you're using, you know, our type of products, we can, we can help you uh, lay it out. On the food side, it's very much about... Uh, the conveyor design, is it uh, easy to clean? Um, we have a food safety uh, you know, consulting company that can help. Um, so 
that that's how we that's how we get involved in those those projects. I'm curious in your role at the helm, how often do you find yourself in in one of these facilities? Well, you know, during COVID, not 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 at all, um, and so. Uh, you know, that's been where, you know, our ability to work uh, with our customers remotely has been a challenge because the customers were under tremendous pressure with COVID, you know, particularly food processing. So no one, you know, everybody's being safe. Like in our factory, you couldn't even go in, right? I mean, we wouldn't let visitors in. Uh, so, uh, but we have, I have uh, calls all the time lately using uh, Zoom or Teams with customers. So I probably talked to I don't know, 20 major food companies in the last, uh, you know, couple of months. Got it. So now, new, it's on our website right now. I think it's on the homepage of our website that you're a big expansion in Baltimore. You, obviously, the, the Hammond facility is being built right now. I saw you're, you're involved in a big expansion in the Netherlands. Is it safe to say that all this expansion is driven by the rise of e-commerce and the events of the last two years, or is that an oversimplification? I think that's a, an oversimplification. I think, uh, you know, during COVID, what happened was, you know, we had really great products for e-commerce, and there was this kind of pause in it when everybody was trying to understand, you know, what was going to happen, and then suddenly everyone realized e-commerce was going to boom, so there was this big expansion, and we were the beneficiary of that to, to some degree. Uh, but um, also our ability to deliver uh, during COVID and during the supply chain crisis, which was just a, a still is a nightmare um, for everybody, including us, our ability, our, our inventory levels, our ability to deliver during that. We had, uh, you know, 2020 was a tough year, but 2021 really rebounded in our core uh, belting business. So our industrial business unit, for example, grew a, grew a ton. Uh, and so the expansion is not just about uh, e-commerce. Now, the Baltimore expansion is, uh, you know, mostly about e-commerce. Um, and then down here, we have a number of our belts for e-commerce, but also we just are out of space. I mean, we're constrained on space, both here and in the Netherlands. And we probably delayed these projects longer than we than we should have. You know, it's a lot of money to spend. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big thing to undertake, but we, we have to do it because uh, we're just running out of space. You mentioned the supply chain. How do you get everything to where it needs to go? If you're sending something to Australia or to Europe, are you going out of, the, of Port Nola or what's the method? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been any, anything we can figure out, you know, in the uh, last, uh, last summer was kind of the way we were doing it. Because the first thing we have to do is we have to have, for our belting business, we have to have enough resins and we have to have all our specialty materials and we have to have enough of them. Now, we came into the pandemic in pretty good shape with our capacity and our inventory levels. And so our teams did, you know, heroic work to keep up with that. Uh, and, you know, you can't describe how hard it was in manufacturing with people. And imagine wearing goggles and masks and fogging up and you, you, know, you have to go with all these different protocols. So we did a great job with that. But still, getting the resins in and our supply team, we were flying things in, you know, figuring things out. And we just did a great job with that. Then you have to get those parts out to the plants, uh, the assembly locations, and that become, becomes a challenge because every day, you know, there was something, you know, there'd be something in Australia, there'd be something in Japan, something in Europe, you know, because each country was going through its, and there were problems with, you know, truckers in England. And so you, it just became the focus that we were worrying about for months. So you go from thinking about other things to suddenly worrying about this. And I just think our team did a, did a very good job. I think our suppliers did a good job, the people we work with. And we incurred a lot of cost uh, 
to uh, to deliver to our customers, but felt it was uh, it was worth it. So we're right downriver from all this petrochemical activity where a lot of these resins get made. Is, is there an efficiency for you where a lot of the raw material, those pellets that you need to make your products, do they just come from right up the road? Well, well, some do and, and some don't. Some come from Texas and uh, it depends on the on the material. But, uh, you know, our, a lot of our main materials are made in the U.S., but we also have materials that are made uh, in Europe and in, uh, in Korea um, because there's certain specialty types of materials that we need. Again, because we go back, we're not just making two materials, we're making there are lots of different things. And sometimes we like having proprietary materials uh, for, our, for our products. Now, I read or it was mentioned to me that Intralax holds many patents. How important is, is the research design side of what you do? Yeah, it's critical. I mean, if we, if we don't continue to invent and innovate, um, you know, it's, it's bad news, right? Because <laughs> You know, the, the, there are com clever competitors, uh, you know, well-funded competitors, you know, who we are competing with. And, you know, we have a reputation for being inventive. And so we like that. And, you know, and I think our business model enhances that. So if you're working closely with customers who trust you, you can then understand their problems and develop solutions. Then you have to have, you know, the right teams in place to make it happen. You know, you have to have the people who are very creative. You have to have the group that understands the application. You have to be able to work closely with the customer or the industry. You have to sometimes take a, you know, take a long-term perspective and you say, you know, we're going to, you know, take, take some chances with something that would solve a big problem, but it may take us, uh, you know, years to do. And I think one of the advantages we have is that we have long-term thinking ownership that's very rational. So we don't panic when something goes wrong in a quarter or two, we can say, okay, and we can also take a, a, a bit of a longer term view on new product development because, you know, you put stuff out and, you, and then you sometimes the, the, the learning can be painful and you say, oh, wow, okay, we should have done something else. But instead of giving up, you say, okay, let's check and check and adjust. Who's your biggest customer now in 2022? And, and how much has that changed, say, from a decade ago or, or maybe 20 years ago? How have things evolved? Well, I, I'd rather not name our biggest customer, but we have the, the large companies in uh, uh, the parcel handling are our biggest customers. Um, and that, you know, they're big retailers as well, you know, um, who are involved, uh, who we work with uh, too, uh, who are interested in distribution. So, uh, and each of those, you know, entities needs its own team, has its own solutions, its own, its own issues that it's trying to, trying to solve. And that's changed a lot. I mean, not, none of those customers was uh, on our, you know, was our law, in our top 10 a decade ago. So, um, so that's changed a lot. And so that's a significant shift for us. But so what, what was the biggest part of your business, say, like at the, at the turn of the millennium? The food part of the business was, uh, was, was the largest and has been the largest. And, you know, our food and our uh, logistics business are roughly the same now. Interesting. So the food didn't shrink, it's just the logistics. No, logi I mean, the food industry, you know, you go to the grocery store, that's a, you know, that's a great place to, to go look for marketing, right? If you want to understand what's going on, go look at all the new protein drinks, go see the small little packages, you know, the frozen food. That's a big thing for us, having belts that can handle uh, freezers. This next question is about just the culture at Intralox. You guys have a reputation as being a great place to work. I've read and I laughed, you have a no jerks policy. 
uh, just talk to me a little bit about how the culture at Interlox had, has developed and, and what, what you do, especially over the last two years, to maintain that. Well, the, you know, the, the, country's, I mean, the company has had a, a long-term business philosophy that I think the, the owners and the, and the leadership uh, believes in its bones. Um, you know, one of the reasons I joined the company was because of the, of, of the business philosophy. And part of it is the business philosophy, which you know, also includes adding customer value. I mean, if you don't do that, you know, nothing really matters. But the business philosophy starts with a belief in the potential of each person. And so it's a view that each of us, you know, has that thing that we, we're good at and we like to do. And when, the, when, when we can find that magic, which is, which is not easy, but when we can, good things happen. Uh, and people can live to their potential. Um, and if you believe in that, then you, it follows you're going to treat people with, with, with respect and dignity. So that's, that's the core of the philosophy. There's much more to it. But, so that's why we can't really put up with jerks, and we have to work across teams. And our, and our, and our model is not to have fiefdoms of managers, and you know, there's this bureaucracy and stuff, and so um, to have decentralized teams. And so that, that's the, what we're trying to do. It's definitely become a challenge over the last four or five years with, with growth and adding so many new people, particularly with so many people remote. So we have people who have you know, really never been in our office in different places. We have a significant office in Amsterdam, for example, you know, and uh, so, you know, that's a challenge. I mean, fortunately, there's great technology, and we have good teams with a lot of experience, but I think we're going to have to work at it to keep our culture as we get bigger. You know, it can either be a really scary thing that there's, you know, we can't retain our culture, and we become like a lot of other companies, or... We can look at it as a challenge and say, look, if we can actually get this right, and we're not one big team, but we're, we're, we're obviously we're one team, but we have teams of teams, and each team has this culture. You know, they're, they're, they're doing well. Uh, you know, you're working with people you trust and respect. You, you know, all of that matters. And I think some of it is, you know, the long-term perspective, and then the, it's okay to be a little vulnerable. You know, if you're a leader and you can say, look, I blew it, I made a mistake, or you can be comfortable when somebody challenges your idea, which is not always easy because, you know, somebody says, well, this was kind of a bad idea, and you know, well, it was mine, you know. But if the, <laughs> but if the, you know, if we can kind of model all of this behavior and model the idea of it's not about whose idea it is, it's, it's not about winning and losing, it's about objectivity and reflecting on, okay, we're going to have a respectful conversation about what's the right thing to do here. We're not going to let our egos uh, get in the way. And... So I think all of that is what we have to continue to emphasize. And, you know, I wish, you know, Rich, I don't want to sit here and say we've got some, you know, world peace here. I mean, we have issues like every company and problems and competitors and all kinds of things. So, but I think if you have a baseline of those values, then it can help you through, get through adversity uh, a little better. All right. My last question is about New Orleans. And, you know, we've been through this crazy couple of years there's obviously the prospect of more extreme weather and we've obviously got all sorts of infrastructure issues and crime worries. As you, as you think about where we are at this moment in 2022 and you look at the economy here and the community, what, what makes you feel worried about the future and what makes you feel optimistic? Yeah. Well, I think some of the problems you, you, you mentioned are there. I mean, what we really, I think that, by the way, I think the, the state and the area has improved dramatically. I remember before Katrina, 
So, you know, but, you know, having a business environment um, where the rules are clear, um, you know, and whatever they are, you know, they're clear, they apply to, they apply to everybody. Um, uh, I think that allows us to attract business. Um, it makes it a good place to do business. Um, if you are a startup company and you have success, you'll, you'll tend to stay. And I think for us, we feel pretty good about, you know, I mean, we're in, we're, you know, we're in Jefferson Parish and we're in, uh, in Hammond, and we feel very good about those locations in, in general. And of course, New Orleans is an exciting place. You know, I mean, we just have to get the tourists back, get the conventions back, and get kind of our, our you know, get back to what we do well. And it's a, it's a very interesting, you know, city. So that, that would be the optimistic part. And, you know, if we have businesses that grow and thrive and, you know, that's good. I think the issues you raised, you know, one thing about, um, you know, Ida was that there was no flooding. So that was about the worst possible, you know, for us in particular, the, the route that thing took, you know, coming through, you know, right over us over here almost and then going right over Hammond, you know, it's just like, wow, how did that happen? You know, but... It, uh, you know, it didn't flood. I think we will improve on the uh, power situation. Uh, and for us, you know, we, we learned some things about generators and stuff that we will uh, improve on. Uh, so we're not, you know, playing hero every time there's a hurricane. Uh, so, but yeah, it's, it's an issue and we have to, you know, I think on that one, we have to make sure that we advertise, you know, look, you know, we're probably one of the most protected cities, coastal cities in the, maybe the most uh, protected against flood in the in the country, so there's some good things too. I think we have to figure the crime thing out. I mean, you just yeah, it, it's happening around the, the the country though. It's not just us. Uh, so I think there's you know the the push towards you know our, our educational system, making sure the you know the, the the police and the community are in a good place. Um, there's a lot lot to do. Understood. Well, and I'm thinking another thing that would help is, you know, last year the. Economically speaking, a great story was all of the big tech exits and uh, just the promise in that industry. But what I can't help thinking is that we could use another 10 interlocks, you know, in New Orleans, just big manufacturing, big businesses here, you know, with the tax dollars and just the, the job. Yeah, and, 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 you know, and figuring out what we do well here, you know, I mean, there's so much, we're not known for manufacturing down here, but I do think. Um, you know, the oil service industry, all of that were, you know, the refineries were, you know, tourism, restaurants, um, you know, some of the, you know, some of the new technology startups. And we do have some significant, uh, you know, companies here. And if, if those companies grow and they're very good at what they do, that, that helps. And those companies like us can also become digital. You know, you start thinking about conveyor belts. I mean, we've got a whole effort towards, uh, you know, digital technology that we want to apply to our to our products so a lot of companies so there's opportunity um here we just have to you know make sure that it's a good place to do to do business well Edel blanks it was really interesting talking to you and i and i sincerely hope that a couple of years from now you've you've sold a lot of belt systems to a lot of new new orleans companies <laughs> well i hope i hope so too that's uh, that's always fun hey i appreciate your time that was really uh Fun to talk about. Well, thanks.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.